When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Fan Forum, the show where we learn more about Husker Nation one fan at a time by asking them the same four questions. Tonight, we're joined by Jim in Minnesota. He's a biased realist full of sarcasm with some occasional interesting and righteous tweets. You can find him on Twitter at HuskersMN. Welcome to the Fan Forum, Jim. Hey, it's great to be here, Hockey. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, how awesome. are you, man? Just living the dream. Been a while to find my uh, my Husker quarter zip, but I uh, dug it out for the show and ready to go, man. I'm excited about this. Yeah, I've got my my rule shirt. They were handing out at the uh, the opening day presser. Uh, I love the idea of your Twitter description. Uh, you're a biased realist, and yeah. uh, on the Redcast, we call our show Husker Realism with an optimistic spin. Kind of the same like thing. It. It's the idea that you don't have to corner yourself as one or the other. You can be a little bit of both. Um, the most interesting fans I talk to are the ones that have a little bit of both in them, right? You know, the if you're just just nonstop optimism and nothing's wrong, that's that's usually gets a little boring. If you're somebody that's just complaining about everything and that the realist that way, that's that same way too. I kind of like it when you you can see things a little bit both ways, and we've always had a lot of good conversations that way. Absolutely, yeah, without a doubt. You know, I think the last I don't know the last ten years, especially, I think if we've learned anything, it's there's another voice out there that doesn't have the same opinion all the time as we do. And and I think listening to those other people's voices and, you know, figuring out, Hey, is everything that I'm thinking exactly spot on or is it things that we should probably think about as well? And, and I, I think I've learned that uh, the hard way, <laughs> you know, especially <laughs> the last five years, but uh, yeah, I, I, hopefully some good news is on the horizon here with, with Will in charge. So. Well, I have someone else that I'm going to be talking with next week that also is one of those, I think optimistic realist. I'm looking forward to this uh, next Wednesday, January 25th at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. We'll have Chaz in SoCal, lifelong Husker learner. Never be afraid to look foolish in the pursuit of learning is uh, is on his uh, Twitter account there. And also we want to promote tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Redcast Rob will be having on Vincent Carroll Jackson, Husker D-line commit, uh, 65270 from Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania. So that'll be a lot of fun. Redcasters, when you're watching that, you know, watch this live, have questions and comments and stuff ready for Redcast Rob and ready for Vincent. Great opportunity to hear from somebody who has been recruited by this new staff and, and you know, has now had a chance to probably start to learn a little bit about what we're going to do on schematically and, and work with the coaches. So uh, that will be a lot of fun there. And uh, it's great to always get a, a Husker on it. But uh, tonight, this isn't about that. This is about... This is about Jim. And what I love about the fan forum, it really is the, the guest is the star. And we want to learn about as many fans from all across Husker nations, young and old, men, women, doesn't matter who you are. We want to learn about it. And we do it by asking the same four questions. Why are you a Husker fan? What is your favorite Husker fan memory? 
who are your all-time favorite Huskers, and then how do you think the Huskers will do next year? And I'm really looking forward to having that conversation with Jim here <laughs> towards the end. But uh, before we get to those questions, Jim, first off, just for the the Redcasters, the fan formers that are that are new to you, tell us a little bit about you. You know, uh, give us your background. Yeah, sure. So I, I grew up in California. I uh, lived there for about 37 years. Uh, grew up listening to Husker games on the radio. Actually, the the fans would pay to have the radio games broadcasted uh, out in California. So um, was there for again 37 years. Moved to Minnesota mm-hmm. in 2014, and have been in this uh, cold, frigid. Uh, <laughs> uh, beautiful North Midwest uh, state here. Um, I'm a health and safety manager for a manufacturing company uh, close by where I live here in Southeast Minnesota and uh, have a view of Wisconsin from our, from our, from our front door here. So oh, I nice. look across and see the, uh, the enemy here every day, which is, uh, <laughs> which is interesting, but uh, no, we really enjoy living in Minnesota and um, enjoy, uh, I do the Twitter page that I do and enjoy the interaction with the fans and, and being on with, uh, with you. This is, I think my fourth time, on your show. So I really appreciate you having me on and, and talking some Nebraska football. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait again. Question four, when we talk about next year, it starts in Minnesota and uh, right. I, we, we may talk about a certain coach up there. I know that you're my you're favorite really coach. Of. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I love, exactly. I love my, love my coach, PJ. <laughs> well, let's get to question number one and that's why are you a Husker fan? Yeah. So growing up, I, my mom is actually from Nebraska. So there's the connection to Nebraska. And I uh, grew up coming back to Nebraska for uh, vacations and, and and Christmas and whatnot. I remember as a kid, just, uh, I think it was a bowl game. It must've been early eighties, must've been Rozier. I think was the player and a lot of uh, excitement in the living room and the grandparents and the, and the aunt, the uncles, and they were all gathered around and and I, I loved little red ends on the helmets. And I remember as a kid thinking that was really cool. And then obviously the excitement of the family being, you know, completely invested in this, in this football team. And again, growing up in California, didn't have that team close by, but just seeing the family being there. And uh, it was an instant kind of attraction for me and um, really took off from there. And like I said, listened to every game on the radio and, and, uh, and then I had a, t- a chance to, to go to school there briefly uh, in the nineties. But uh, yeah, I think more just the family. Like I think a lot of Nebraska fans, same thing. It grew up in, in mm. kind of that atmosphere and just being around it and and seeing uh, you know, seeing just the passion from from the entire family and knowing it was special and knowing, you know, how much it meant to them. And mm. I wanted to be part of that, part of that energy. I mean, I remember there's just that that black, that small TV in the living room and everyone was just like just totally invested in it. It was just it was fun. So that's how and it, it was started. Your- and it was your mom. Your mom grew up yeah, in Nebraska. Yeah, mom grew up in uh, in Bellevue. So Bellevue is, and then, uh, and then uh, she, uh, yeah, we we go back there. So my grandparents and aunts and uncles, everybody else was still there. So, and then mm-hmm. my siblings still live in in Omaha and Bellevue. So my parents as well. So mm-hmm. it's a six you know, hour a, drive from here, which is nice. You said you know early '80s, so you grew up in that regard, very similar time frame as me. My first year that I remember everything was '83. Uh, okay. So the scoring explosion, triplets with Rozier and Fryer and Gill. Um, it's an interesting time because Nebraska was so good at that point, you know, top 10 consistently. And also, like, there wasn't a lot of televised football at that point yet. And right. so Nebraska yeah. would get two or three national games a year. And so you could be living out in California and seeing us as often as you would see probably a, a California team, most likely. So it, it's yeah. it's interesting how that kind of, that kind of played out, but those formative years for both you and I at that time, um, we were pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of bowl games, and there was a stretch. I think as we got older, I think we're about the same age, mm-hmm. um, where they weren't winning bowl games, and it it almost became a time where you almost dreaded that bowl game and the narrative around Osborne and not being able to win. And I I told a, a friend of mine who's not a Nebraska fan, you know, kind of what we went through, um, you know, that the high school college years. I'm talking, you know, early '90s, mid '90s, and just the frustration about around can he actually do this? Can he actually you know, beat a, a good team. And I, I kind of dreaded the ball games because I, I we're going to lose to a Florida team. I just, I kind of mm-hmm. knew it. And um, to get over that hump finally was, was, was special, but that those six years there where we couldn't win, you know, in the, in the, after the season was, was kind of tough. It was, Wait, it was kind of embarrassing was, a little bit. It was like, gosh, you can't get through. Seven straight bowl losses, but it was a seven. You, okay. Yeah. It was seven. Okay. But, but to your point, you're playing down in Florida and you're losing to Florida teams. You're playing Miami in their home. Yeah. Uh, if we don't play Miami, uh, if we don't play in the Orange Bowl, then one year we got the uh, reprieve and we got sent up to the Citrus Bowl to play Georgia Tech and the greatest team they'd ever had. So we were constant. This is still kind of – it irks me to this day because I see the SEC doing some of this. When a team doesn't ever have to leave their, their home confines or doesn't have to travel much more than a couple hours, it's just it's an extra advantage. And in sure. those 80s, we were either playing Miami in Miami or we were playing LSU in the Sugar Bowl. And, you know, those are frustrating things that now that we're getting into a, a playoff era where you can actually host a game, have teams host them. Like, as much as I dislike Fleck, if Minnesota ever could host a game in December against Alabama or something, I would just love it. I would just love anything yeah. where we get a team, a Southern team, having to come up north to play in, in conditions like, you know, that we get to see something that can be a bit of a neutralizer, but because we've always gone the other way, all of us Northern teams, yeah. we always are going South and true playing them in their home. I mean, you think about it, like if, you know, it'd be like, you know, for, when we beat Miami in 94, I mean, we were playing in their stadium and it, we don't really think about, think about playing a game in Memorial stadium for that championship. Like mm-hmm. how weird would that be to have, you know, whoever come and play us in Memorial stadium for the, for the, for the title. It'd be mm-hmm. crazy. And that's what we did. We beat them. I remember the controversy about having the smoke. Do you remember that? They used to have that smoke machine when they would come out of the tunnel. The Hurricanes mm-hmm. did. And I think it was Osborne said, hey, you know, this shouldn't be like a home game for them. And they shouldn't have. Now, why can they have the smoke? This isn't this is a bowl game. And I thought, yeah, he's right. You know, they should. It's not their home. Yeah. I mean, it is, but it's like their home stadium. But it's not. It's weird. It's just, you're right. It's a weird time to be playing games in their home stadium. What are yeah, they right. Rob asked there, what do you think the score would have been if the championship game was played in Texas? And I, I assume, you're, Rob, you're, t- you're referring to the uh, the Orange Bowl that we're talking about with, like, Miami. Um, you know, when you're playing down there, that was the, the great thing about that 95 Orange Bowl was that there, nobody was going to say that we didn't deserve it. I know we couldn't play Penn State. And of, of all the, the seasons where I actually feel for whoever the opponent was that didn't get a chance, I feel for Penn State there. They went undefeated. Sure. They didn't get a chance to play us. That was the rules of the of the the time. I get it. I've never felt that way for Michigan three years later. They should have been playing us. They were in a conference that chose to play in the Rose Bowl over the Bowl Alliance, and because uh, yeah. in '94 we had to play, we had to play in the Orange Bowl. We were the Big Eight champs. In 1995, we were the Big Eight champs. But with the Bowl Alliance, we no longer had to play in the Orange Bowl. We could play in the Fiesta Bowl. Florida no longer had to play in the Sugar Bowl. They could play in the Fiesta Bowl. The Bowl Alliance fixed all the issues, except for the yeah. Big Ten and the Pac-10. Those two decided they wanted to 
the Rose Bowl was more important to them than than playing being a part of the Bowl okay. Alliance. And so I didn't know that. So that's why it, everything worked out okay in '95 and '96, and then in '97 we run into the same issue. So the argument, anytime, and this always gets lost on Twitter. I get into an argument with someone on this, and 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 the point gets lost. But it, you know, who would have won, Michigan or Nebraska? It doesn't matter. It, it the the what upsets me is that game should have been played. And the reason it didn't get played was not Nebraska's fault. Nebraska joined the, the alliance that would have made that game be played. And uh, the other the other conference now that we're in, and by the way, that that Rose Bowl doesn't look as shiny anymore. You know, now for all right. the all the work of wanting to keep the, the Rose Bowl above the fray, now that we're pulling in USC and UCLA, that Rose Bowl has a different has a different Which look is and too meaning. Bad. It is. I, I mean, I love the Rose Bowl. I think that's to me, that's the best venue in all of sports. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I went to several games there. I obviously grew up not too far from there. And um, I mean, I always tell people it's, it's, it looks better. And it, I mean, it looks amazing on TV to be there mm-hmm. in that Rose Bowl. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, and I love having that bowl mean something. I remember growing up as a kid mm-hmm. watching the Rose Bowls. And I mean, I wasn't a fan of the Big Ten or the, the Pac 12, obviously, but just that, that pageantry around the bowl game there was, was awesome. So I kind of yeah. miss, th- miss that even as a go ahead. Well, the beauty is the, the venue still is amazing. I mean, I, I 100% yeah. agree that the Rose Bowl is amazing. Um, it doesn't have to be just for two conferences. And that's the thing that maybe gets lost in some of those conversations is like mm-hmm. when I tell some Big Ten guy that I don't care about the Rose Bowl the way that they do. Like if I look at the Wisconsin's side of their stadium, it talks about the Rose Bowls they've been, made the way that we talk about the national championships. I just I don't care about the Rose Bowl like that because to me, the Orange Bowl was my bowl game growing up. I mean, if I had a if I had a, yeah. a you know, a, a, an affection bowl game, yeah. one bowl game, it would, it would have been the Rose Bowl, but or the Orange Bowl. I'm sorry. But now that now that that building's been torn down and we've moved on and we're into this era. Now, what I want to do is I, I want the I want Nebraska. I want the conference I'm part of to be playing for, you know, meaningful title games and getting into playoffs and and. Ultimately, I I want to see SEC teams more than anything have to get out of their comfort zone every once in a while. And uh, the only way that we can do that right now is you got to get into the playoff and get them to come up here and play north. We'll see. But, yeah, it should be fun. Well, let's get to the question number two here. What is your favorite Husker fan memory? Yeah, so I, I'm going to put aside the national championships for a second. I think everyone's memory of – the Fiesta Bowl and the Orange Bowl were, were awesome. But if I could put those aside and pick another another game that was awesome, to me it was the, uh, the 09 Holiday Bowl. And this is a picture of my wife and I. And this is uh, this is a couple of Californians dressed like they're in Minnesota winter. But it was it was a it was a very frigid 68 degrees that day. And um, it was Dominican Sue's last game. And if you remember, this was uh, mm. against Arizona, and we were uh, shutting them out. And it was just a fun game. And we was. We were in control. Uh, Nick Foles couldn't do anything against our defense. And then at the end of the game, if you recall, we were trying to keep him below 100 yards total offense. And we had pulled the, re- the reserve. Or we pulled the stars out, and and they started to march down towards the end zone. And Bo put the uh, starters back in <laughs> to uh, to try to keep it under 100 yards. And, and the, the the crowd was just going nuts. And um, it was fun to see, you know, after the painful loss to Texas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having to watch that, you know, that shell of an offense for, you know, for how many games that was after the Iowa State loss, when we had the, the 17 turnovers or whatever it was in that game and, and Bo shut it down. But to see him open it back up in the bowl game and, and run zone read and, and run 
uh, Zach Lee with, with, you know, quarterback keeper. And it was like, where was mm-hmm. this offense? But it, you know, the Niles Paul explosion and it was just, it was a fun, fun night. And, uh, to be there with, with Husker fans from outside the country, my wife's been to three games, of, you know, entire, entire life. And that was probably the funnest time she had. So that's my best memory as a, as a Husker fan. Um, well, that's, you know, that's going a, after actual game. Yeah. That's a great memory. So here's the funny part. Here's the funny part too, is when we were walking out of the stadium, it's just funny. Um, if you recall, like, so they're, they're given this, this, and the trophy's a big giant whale, like the holiday bowls. I uh, forget the sponsor Pacific life. Yeah. Um, and they give this, this giant whale, the bow and I'm walking out and he's like, and we're going to be 10 times better on defense next year. I turn to my wife. I'm like, <laughs> that is not true. There's no way they're losing <laughs> in no Dominican Sioux, Prince of Mucamara and, and Philip Dillard. And, and I'm like, what is he talking? About? And it was like, it was like the, it, it killed my high. Like I was thinking we're going to be, this is Bo's going to be awesome. This is going to be amazing. Like, you know, this is the guy. And he said that. And I was like, this guy, that's not, yeah. I just were like, I just, I got the car kind of pissed off. I'm like, what are you talking about? 10 times better. That, that there's, you know, that's the biased realist right there. Right. It I is. Mean, you're, yeah. you're happy as hell about the win, but come on, seriously. Like that defense, that's a national championship defense. Oh, you know, yeah. that defense to go 10 and four with that team is almost a shame because that defense was so amazing. And I was at that Texas game. So we're tailgating in at uh, Jerry world during the day. And some Texas fan, real arrogant one was tailgating with us and comes up, Oh, Nebraska, we're going to beat you guys, you know, 50 to 50 to 25 or something like that. He said, and I'm like, dude, you may, you guys very well may beat us. Don't get me wrong. You may beat us, but you're not scoring 55 on us, and we're not scoring 25 on you either. By the way, yeah. our offense, our <laughs> offense is terrible, and our defense oh, is gonna, man. you know, probably hold you guys to 15, and that still may not be enough for us to, to, to win it. Right? I mean, that that season to have such contrast of what an unbelievably dominant defense. Yeah. And to just have probably the most unserviceable offense. Future. And it didn't make sense because it wasn't a talentless offense. You no, have Roy Hallou and Burkhead and you have Niles Paul and you know Spencer Long, I think, was on the line. And two quarterbacks that were four-star quarterbacks, Cody Green and Zach Lee. But just nothing yep. nothing ever came together, it felt like. Well, that was frustrating. The thing is, like, he, and then I remember the discussion before the bowl game. And there was talk of, I think it was, I think it was, um, who was our OC? Sean. Uh, Sean Watson. Sean Watson. He was talking to recruits about how they're going to open it up and watch it open. I'm like, why? Why couldn't you open it up against Texas? Like, <laughs> where was this? You know, and it, and they were running the zone read, and Zach Lee was running wild, and you're and you're happy, but at the same time, it's it's frustrating. It's kind of mm-hmm. like you know a little bit, kind of like what, what you know what's happened you know with Iowa the last two years, where it's like you can see there's options available to them to do some things, and it's like you know and. You know, obviously, what, and not that I'm an Iowa fan, but it's like, why don't you do what's in front of you? And, and in that bowl game, they did it. They did everything that you would hope they'd do throughout the year. Throw deep to Miles Paul. I mean, Miles Paul was a phenomenal receiver. You know, mm-hmm. let him let him get deep. Use his speed. Um, Rex Burkhead in the Wildcat. That was his first Wildcat game where he had a tremendous game. And it was just, it was fun, but it was like, gosh, if we had used this, it could it could have beat Texas. It could have, you know beat Iowa state for sure. I mean, it was just, it was weird, but it was, it was a fun, fun culmination to, you know, like you said, the most dominant defense that, that we have ever seen in our lifetimes at Nebraska for sure. So yeah. And he, I mean, you I, know what's funny is about that game. Sue's last game was that, that, that it was the last game. Mm-hmm. He didn't really have any, like he was kind of 
vacant in that game. How he didn't have any sacks. He didn't have any pressures. It was mm. kind of like his 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 last hurrah was the Texas game, but it was they still dominated Arizona. But I've never seen a more individually dominant defensive game than that Texas game with uh no, with no, Sue. Yeah. I mean that's you know, I, I think there might be some team defenses that we had, you know, 94, 95, and there were, you know, 97. There are some great defenses we had that are, I don't know if they're better, but at least they're on par. That 09 defense was unbelievable, and Sue was unbelievable. But individually, man, Sue just changed the whole game. I mean, he could, he could two gap anybody. He, could, there was a stretch early in the season, three or four games in, where he was, listed in the top he was ranked in like the top 30 of pass breakups he was the only non defensive back as he was also in the top 10 on sacks and top 10 on qb hurries and and you know my goodness he just what couldn't he do and then you'd see his stats i think brett siancia pick six previews likes to post this every once in a while but it was the final stats in 2009 of sue against the defensive line of florida alabama and like one other school (laughs) texas maybe it was and Sue's stats almost across the board are better than the entire defensive lines That's of insane. those schools. That was just yeah. insane. I mean, that was fun. And, yeah. and, and you know, maybe something we can get to in a little bit as we talk about this next season is how sometimes when you make a coaching change, how new coaches, new strength and conditioning concepts, new eyes on a player, how that can change how things look. Because some of those same defensive yeah. players that were on that unbelievable, incredible 0-9 defense – were some of the same players that were on that 07 defense that at the very end of Callahan's era, we're losing 60 something to 50 something to Colorado with a lot of those guys, Dillard and, and Sue playing, you know, some significant snaps there. So who knows, who knows? We're not, uh, we're not making that prediction yet, but, and we'll get to there in in question four, but let's get to question three first. Who are your all time favorite Huskers, Jim? So my all time favorite Husker and, was is going back to these bowl games we kept losing and there was one there was one husker that was always making plays always going up against the florida state receivers and miami receivers <laughs> and just making plays and for pound for pound he was the most bad i'm gonna say <laughs> bad a uh husker and that's baron miles i mean baron mm. miles was was a phenomenal player and he had that special talent not only was he, you know, an amazing cornerback, but he could block punts. And mm-hmm. um, his ability to change games with with block punts, and um, he's just fearless. I mean, he, he he was he was the guy, you know, making plays against Kansas State, against Chad May, um, mm-hmm. when you had to, uh, time and time again. I remember just hearing and Baron Miles, you know, and it just and to see him play for the first time, you're like, that's Baron Miles. Like he's just this tiny little guy, and so. I took an affinity to, to, to Baron Miles and, and definitely enjoyed watching him um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a youngster. Well, I can't wait to ask this question a week from now to Chaz in SoCal because last week when I asked Shelby it, her answer was Baron Miles. So, you know, is there a chance I've no had back to back Baron Miles? Back to back. Could we have back to back? We have a three peat of them because I, I agree with you 100%. And I'm going to sound like a broken record from last week, but. What he did, you know, he held in 93, he held J.J. Stokes of UCLA to one of only two games where he didn't score a touchdown. And Stokes was a big 6'5", 6'6", receiver. And Miles, as always, is giving up seven, eight, nine inches. But he had a 40-plus inch vertical. Insane vertical. Oh, insane. And against against Miami, same thing. There was like Chris T. Jones and a couple of other receivers they had that were 6'4". And he was, he's going, yep, yep. He was going one-on-one against all those guys. 
And I always remember the Thursday night Oklahoma State game that was on ESPN where he took the punt off the foot of the Oklahoma <laughs> State punter for a touchdown. Right. And it's, you know, he was kind of the predecessor. Then we had Trell Farley after that for a couple of years, and he was that way on special yeah. teams. But you mentioned Iowa earlier this last season. And Iowa this last year, I mean, it was they would have unbelievable special teams. And, and it was whether they were blocking punts or they would, you know, they win games with great defense and great special teams. Wow. And Nebraska back then, there were a number of games like that too where you, you make the big special teams play and Osborne had such appreciation for it. I would challenge any Husker fan, if you haven't, go to YouTube after, you, of course, you watch this. Go to YouTube and um, and watch the 96 Nebraska K-State game. It's the game four of the season. We've uh, we already lost to Arizona State. Our offense was struggling. You know, it was still the first year of frost, and, and we were just kind of getting our feet under us. And you go out to Manhattan to play a top twenty K State team, and that's the year they're really going to beat us. Now they're going to beat us in in 1996, and our offense struggled, but we made four field goals in the first half, including like a fifty some yarder from Chris Brown at the end of the half. Blocked two two punts. Two punts. One of them was uh, was insane. Terrell Farley, and defensively just destroyed him. And we looked ugly. Like you would watch that game, and you'd think maybe it's a tie. And we were up like nineteen to three at half, and won the game thirty-one to three. And we did not look impressive at all. But it was just you played huh. great special teams, great defense, and uh, the offense. You know, it kind of let the offense finally get things figured out. And by the end of that year, the offense was was doing pretty well. By the time they got to the Orange Bowl and played Virginia Tech, but it took a while. And, uh, you know, those other two, you know, areas of the team, defense and special teams are so important. And, uh, yeah, players like players like Miles, players like Farley, all those guys, uh, they made a huge difference. Well, this is it. I mean, I didn't want to rush us through the first three questions, Jim, but I knew (laughs) I wanted to give us as much time and there is no time limit here. Question number four. How do you think the Huskers will do this year? It's a loaded oh, question. Yeah. It's a loaded question. It's it's there's nuances. How do we want to break this down? I'll let you kind of start. How do how do we want to start to break down what, what's going to happen? Yeah, we were talking before the show started, and obviously, and there's those first two games are so interesting, right? There's a pressure-packed games, or you have a you have a league game. Um, I think it's an opponent who's beat you the last three years in a row. Mm-hmm. Um or is it four? Four years. Yeah, we only beat them four the first years in a row. Year. Yeah. So, first I mean, out first. of the gates, you have you have that, and then we go into Colorado, and you know, I I think we can get to a bowl game next year. I think that's my expectation that they do that. I think the schedule, you know, aside from the the rough start out of the gates without really having a nice easy layup, um, aside from that, I think the schedule is pretty good, and I think that if your rule you look at the schedule and go, yeah, we can, we can definitely work with this. And um, we'll see. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who's going to play quarterback. You know, there's so many questions we don't have answers to. I guess the hard part is you, you can kind of look at these, these, uh, these pieces and, and look at their history and, and start to think about how they can piece this together uh, on defense. I, you know, they're adding a ton of pieces. Um, I had somebody ask me, you know, what do you think they're going to do with, with so-and-so? I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know if, I don't know if, you know, Sherman's going to be an edge uh, you know, or if he's going to be, uh, you know, like an inside linebacker that's going to be 250 pounds. I, I just don't know. And that's that's the fun part, right? It's kind of seeing how these things work out. And we'll maybe know some more in the spring and, you know, watch the spring game and kind of get an idea of, of what they're trying to do. But um, it's a lot of intrigue there and there's a lot of curiosity of what's going to happen. But um, 
I, I think I think going getting getting a bowl game twelve and zero. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to say that, but um, I'll say this: they're not going to do. You know, you look at rules pass and look at his season one or season one, both at Temple and at Baylor. He's I think he won one game at Baylor and I think was it similar at Temple one or two yeah, games like there two, as well. Two games maybe two at Temple for sure. He's going to do much better than that. Um, he's got pieces. I mean, this this team we saw. Mm-hmm. Um, this last year, obviously, we only won four games. We saw them beat Iowa. Uh, we saw they have talent, and so I think you you add the pieces they're adding in, and I I think you add an adult in the room with with rule and the staff he's put together, and mm-hmm. you know I, I I expect that they'll they'll get to a bowl game. That's that's my that's my view right now in in January at least. Mm-hmm. But we'll see yep. as this thing materializes. You know, the the motto I'm gonna I'm gonna beat this horse here over the the course of the off season for me I'm, it's the race to six, and I'm not like saying it. the ceiling is six. I, I don't put ceilings on Nebraska, but the the race to six means I think it's important in year one of rule because I think he's he's an experienced coach and I think he's a, a good hire and a good fit here. I also think it's important a tangible sign of of progress because we've talked about progress so long on this show but it never turns into wins. A tangible sign of progress is six wins getting to a bowl game. So the race to six in my mind works like, Hey, Hey, we could be six and zero in, in week six, right? We could do almost essentially what Lance Leipold did and, and be five and one at six games. We could, we could conceivably. Yeah. And then Leipold turned around went one and five, the last six games that could happen too. Who knows, but you still get to six, you get to the bowl game. So whether it takes us six weeks or it's 12 weeks. We're sitting at five and six uh, with Iowa coming to town and we need to win it to get to a bowl. Whatever it is, I think it's, we got it. I really believe we got to get to that bowl game next year to show a good early sign that this is, this is working. Um, it, we shouldn't start off 0 and 6 again, like we did in the first year of Frost, despite mm-hmm. there's going to be crazy things that happen and, you know, weird things and, and you got to be able to adapt. But, if you can play good special teams, if you can play good defense, you're going to win some early games. We talked about, you know, Frost two years ago, first game of the season's at Illinois. That's a team we should beat, and Bielema was in his first game there. Well, Bielema's Illinois team, nothing impressive. They just didn't right. really screw up. They let us screw up. They let us drop yeah, punts. Just, yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we, we get the big interception on them, uh, and it gets called back because we have 30 yards of penalties on one play, hitting a quarterback high and then taunting them. Right. We, you can't yeah. do those things. And good teams and good coaching staffs don't allow their teams to do that stuff. So um, I expect a more disciplined team on day one than we had the last five years. That's part of the coaching change. That's kind of, in some regard, I mean, kind of the adult in the room thing that you you referenced. I mean, we need to be, we need to be able to go in games and feel like we might be able to beat a team that has, is more talented than us because we're going to outcoach them. We're going to, we're going to uh, we're going to do the things that take that takes to win. It's not all about talent because we've lost to a lot of teams that we're more talented to the last five years. Yeah. Um, play good football, and that can start on day one. And uh, the, we don't have to have the full the full uh, playbook in and everything yet on on play one, game one. Let's just let's let's start with playing good football, good sound football, lining up under center at, at times, getting into a huddle. I when when Satterfield said that that was more enticing to me than the the fullback thing okay why so the huddle i've said this the last few years on the show where i'm like the huddle is a chance whenever we have communication errors hey we jumped off sides 
you know, and, and we're moving too fast, even though we're not really in tempo, we're still moving too fast. We, we get 10 yards on a play, but it gets called back because we have an illegal formation and a receiver is covered up by another receiver. When all those things would happen, it was like, slow down, get into a huddle for a second, just talk, talk to each other for one second, you know, and Osborne, I remember listening to him talking about the, the signs on the, the sideline. And this is okay. before Frost got hired here, but he was talking about it and he just, he called, he hated it then. He just said, huh. I, I don't like, you know, he's like, I don't get it. You get up to the line of scrimmage, you stop, you you turn to the side and all that. Now we did it because that's what Frost was doing at, at Oregon. And, sure. and I, I mean, I'm, I was supportive of it because what, what other option do I have? But everyone's doing end, it. <laughs> everyone's doing it, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, getting into a huddle and just calling a play and lining up doesn't slow you down. Osborne would always line up in a huddle, and we were traditionally at the line of scrimmage between 20 and 25 seconds. And in fact, we'd only line up about three yards off the line of scrimmage for the huddle uh, because Osborne wanted the team to break huddle and turn around and be right there. I mean, it, it was everything was so intentional. Right. And right. at the very least, cut out the intangibles, the things that can that can screw you up. If it, if you're having a communication error, that's on you. You got to figure out a way not to have that. So when I think of errors, when I talk about a team being sloppy, I think of the Oklahoma game. I'm a broken record, but Oklahoma two years ago, we have two pre-snap penalties before we even snap it for the first time to Martinez. I think of Northwestern in 2020, the, the COVID year out there. In the first half, we have five offensive line penalties on five different offensive linemen. And if you remember, we are we're, we're marching right down the field on Northwestern. Yeah. I mean, it's like cutting through butter. But we'd get ten yards and have to come back fifteen, and we'd get ten more yards and we'd have to come back five. And yeah. you and, and you could never get out of your own way. How do we get out of our own way? That's and that's what I mean. That's what rule is tasked with. Um, I think we're going to be more physical. That's a that's. Absolutely an approach that Trev said from day one. So that's there's your, your trenches. Let's get more physical. Let's make less mistakes. So let's be more disciplined. We were more disciplined on the line last year under under Rayola's coaching, for what it's worth. I know it didn't it's always true. show up in the X's and O's, and and we can talk about alignment of how did you know Rayola uh and Whipple mesh. You know, that's that's not one thing, well. but <laughs> probably not, right? Yeah. yeah, dude. I mean, here's so let me ask you this. Do you get the impression, because you look back at this this way he built Baylor, you know, during that 2017 year, it's well documented. He had one one guy left in his recruiting class, and there was no NIL and no portal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, he had to go out the old-fashioned way. And he, he, in a span of like six weeks, he put together a 25-plus recruiting class. But I, I get the, the strong impression that, in a, you know, I'll go back one step further. I think I tweeted this out yesterday. One of my concerns was coming in was was how is he going to utilize the portal and NIL to build this development program that he wants, that Trev wants, that you know mm-hmm. Husker Nation wants to see. But how is he going to kind of marry that with the, the fact he's got assets now with the portal and NIL he didn't have before? And I I was a little bit worried about because I thought oh, he's going to build this way. He's known how's how how he built it in the past. They're going <laughs> their traditional way of just high school kids, but he's he hasn't. I mean, I think we're up to nine or ten transfers now, and you can see he's getting guys to to play now, and mm-hmm. they have two two years left. And to me, that tells me that to your point, um, he he wants to win 
I think every coach wants to win, right? But he wants to win now. And I think he knows he's, he's very in tune with, with Husker fans and he knows the, um, the pain of the last five years, even going back to the Riley's, he knows that. And he knows that he wants to build it right. At the same time, he, he's going to need to still inspire some hope and um, be able to show, I think, sooner than later, that there is definitely um, that his plan is going to work. And um, he, he's not going to take Husker Nation for granted. And you can tell that in the way he talks. And um, he just he gets that part of it. And I think that I think some of that maybe is why he's getting guys that are going to play. Maybe it's the need. He just needs guys because we have holes. But I think part of it, too, is that he realizes that um, to your race to six, I think that's important. I think that's really important for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think he, I mean, he talked about this before. I don't think he was like, okay, one game or winning one game was great at Baylor in 2017. Obviously, mm-hmm. he knew he wanted to win more, more games than that. But um, that's not going to work next year. If we win one game next year, I, mean, I guarantee you there's going to be people going, I didn't sign up for this. Like I've, I've dealt with seven years of this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what I like about it. he 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 gets it. He gets the he hasn't been here for more than you know two months, but he gets he knows everything about what we've been through. Even when he wasn't mm-hmm. here, you know what I'm saying? Like that's what's unique about rules. He just he absorbs all that that energy, both that the the angst and the frustration, and then the excitement for next year. He seems mm-hmm. to have really. Um, unique abilities to, to tap into that right away. Yeah, he's and definitely the, unique. The, he's the son of a preacher, man. I mean, he understands how to, to to work a crowd and talk to a crowd. But also, you know, he is a a fan and a former player of a, of blue blood. I'm going to call Penn State one of the one of the blue bloods of football, or certainly right up there. And he understands a fan base and a passionate fan base that, um, you know, that there are some things that. Uh, this fan base has just gone through now for, for five, six, seven years. And you need to show some tangible pro, uh, progress on the win loss uh, column, not just, you know, getting the big recruit or whatever. Cause we've, we've had that all along the way. We've had big recruits and sure. big off season moments, but you got to win some games. I have a, you know, and you mentioned some of the early with uh, temple and Baylor. These are different scenarios. Obviously anyone can look at those two, especially Baylor, what he took over. I mean, there were, off the field scenarios that that affected things. He did only keep one player in that one recruiting class before they went out and got their other guys. But that one guy they got turned out to be an all American form. So it was, it was part of maybe this starts to get into the, how do you blend being a developmental program with also having some real win now situations. And I think one way that you do it, I think one way that they can do it is what's happening right now. It's this is such an important part of the season is that you need to have your guys on campus now. We just saw the first uh, weight room tweet that came out tonight. Those guys, if they're not in that weight room right now, it's really hard for me seeing them being a major contributor when we get to the Minnesota game in August. We need right. guys that are going to be here during the course of the offseason, going through spring or going through all the, the summer conditioning or, or winter conditioning, going through spring ball. Um, this is no knock. And I mean this sincerely, we've, we've had his mom on the show, but like Oshan, we had, we had him, he was a great player, the top, top guy out of the, out of the portal, but he doesn't get here till July. And that, that has to affect some of the development of a guy. Absolutely. And not to mention, you know, we could talk about whether we used him right early in the season. That's a whole different thing, but just get guys here now. And that gives you a chance, I think, to develop them. And so 
I'm at more, I'm every bit as excited that we got, uh, you know, who's the guy that, uh, oh, did you say uh, MJ Sherman? MJ Sherman. I'm excited that we got him, right? I'm more excited that he's going to be here now and he's going to be here over the course of the offseason. And then let's see what happens when we get to spring ball. Do, do we change up a little? Does rule change up a little bit of how we practice? He talked about he he loves the Oklahoma drill. That's his that's his top yeah. thing. And Trev has gone on and on about how we got to be a more physical program. I've I've been beat up a little bit sometimes on social media and everything talking about green jerseys. I think I think when you have a quarterback competition and you're in situations like scrimmage situations, I think you take a jersey off and you let those guys hit. If you have a clear cut number one guy that doesn't need to take the hits, I I don't give. I don't give meaningless right. hits to someone, but I, I also don't think we're in a position right now. As much as I like Casey, I think we should have a full out competition. We've got six guys on scholarship right now. And I think every one of those guys, you give them an opportunity to earn it. And I, I've used this analogy several times on the show, but you know, I've gone to coaches clinics from Solich all the way to, to the frost era. And that practice I went to in, in 2005 to was it 2005 or four, whatever it was, it was after the uh, 2000, it was after the uh, first season of, of uh, Callahan. So we have our first losing season. Daly's the starting quarterback. We get to the next spring ball. Daly's the starting quarterback. And there's this backup guy, Zach Taylor. And we get to a Saturday practice and it's us coaches, these high school coaches. And mm-hmm. we were coaching youth football, middle age kids, middle school age kids. Anyways, there's about 200 of us in the crowd and we watch for a two hour long practice and the, the quarterbacks had no green jerseys on and Adam Carricker, Jay Moore, like even Smith, Titus Adams, Stuart Bradley, those guys beat the snot out of the quarterbacks, including, including Zach Taylor, but he got up, he would call the next play. He'd complete a little pass. He just moved the ball. He looked like the quarterback. And over the course of two hours, they went from having Joe Daly was the clear starter at the beginning of it. And by the end of it, it was Zach Taylor. You don't, you can't learn that about a guy playing touch football. You just can't. And, and so I don't doubt Casey Thompson, by the way, I feel better about Casey Thompson coming in. And I know the injuries. I mean, I, I just wanted to get healthy number one, but I feel better about Casey Thompson right now than I did about Joe Daly at any point at that time. So sure, I like Casey sure. Thompson. But I also want to see Sims out there. I want to see Torres. I want to see Purdy and Harburg and, and Smothers. And I want to see those guys battling for for a champ, you know, for a spot. Because what I really like about this staff right now, they haven't run people off needlessly. Let them go. Let we've got 96 guys or something right now. That's awesome. Cool. Let them compete. Yeah. Stay here as long as you can during this offseason. Observe every guy during the, the, the conditioning, observe them during spring ball. And then we'll have the next round of guys leave after that. But that's yeah. that's after our coaches have had a chance to evaluate them. That's there's some development. Yeah, I, I like their approach. I I, there, I like the fact they have a huge roster right now because they're gonna things are gonna change for them pretty quickly here in terms of mm-hmm. the strength conditioning. We've already we've already heard some whispers that uh, things are different, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the weight room. And and I, I don't want to get into like you know, oh my god, they're lifting more weights or anything like that. But there's a different attitude, and I think it was. Um, Oh, what's the uh, so uh, the the corners back coach uh, Ethan or Evan uh, Cooper, Cooper? Sorry, Cooper. Yeah, he he made the like, he made the joke like you guys get nice rule and you know you guys haven't seen <laughs> what we deal with. I mean, rule by all accounts is um, he's intense and 
he knows he's going to weed guys out. Their guys are going to leave the program and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of, t- and you know, you brought up Zach Taylor. It's a great example. Um, I think the guy, the coach that, that rule is most like is Callahan um, from his organization to his, mm-hmm. his, his absolute commitment to recruiting and, and Callahan obviously developed um, what became huddle uh, later on, but his, his ability to take what he learned from, from the Raiders and the professional uh, NFL model to evaluate talent was phenomenal. I mean, you look at, you look at the, the talent he brought in and acquired, I call it talent acquisition. Mm-hmm. And you look at this, this class that rules building, building right now, I think he's up to 33, maybe 34 with more to add. Uh, this is going to rival Callahan's first class as far as numbers go. And so you look at this, the similar path that he's doing in this, this, um, this complete strategy of recruiting in the way they're building this thing. And I, I think that, that maybe you're, you're, we'll see how it plays out, but I think that the approach is, is going to be similar with how Callahan as far as the practice goes and things like that. It's going to be tough. It's going to be physical. Mm-hmm. And um, I think guys are going to leave. And there's going to be guys that are like, oh, not that guy. Oh, my gosh, not him. But you know what? That's 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 okay. The, the, this is this is the process. Um, J.D. Pinkle, if you've watched the video from him from On3, mm-hmm. he made the comment. He said, you know, Nebraska fans, just sit back and enjoy the process. You may only win four games next year, five games, but I guarantee you the process is going to work. And um, not to get too off topic, but I, I thought if Callahan had another year, I thought – that recruiting class that he had lined up and what he was doing, his his failure was obviously a defensive coordinator, but his program and the way he grinded um, is what you need at Nebraska. I mean, he Callahan and we haven't had a coach grind um, like we do with with rules going back to basically Callahan, and that's what you need mm-hmm. in Nebraska. Someone who's going to have that commitment, and we'll see how it I, plays out. But I agree. I, with you. I I would say like you know Callahan, you go back to 07. The two knocks I would give on him was defensively, and we can blame Cosgrove there. Or we can, at the end of the day, Callahan's the head coach, so he's responsible for the defense. And, and, but whatever was going on defensively, I don't know if it was ever going to get better F- from a, a development standpoint. It seemed like it required Bo coming in and Dobson coming in to get Dillard to lose 40 pounds because they had him at 275 playing some weird middle guard. Nose tackle, and, yeah. and Sue was, <laughs> it was overweight. He was watch yeah. that Colorado game. So it almost, it took a change. And this is interesting because it's kind of where we're at right now, a different mindset with new coaches doing something different. But the other thing that Callahan did was I think maybe he chased some stars sometimes. And when I think of Joe Gantz versus Sam Keller, there's no reason Keller ever should have been playing. Yeah. This is my, my Sam Keller framed <laughs> autograph. That's the only autograph I have is Sam Keller. But no, I agree. I'm just joking. You, you know, that is like, Sam Keller, by the way, though. <laughs> and that's what I'd want to see when I say that there's six quarterbacks on, on roster right now. I'm, I don't have a rooting interest to be honest with you in any one of them. I don't really care who it is. I want them to compete and I want to, and there's going to be a starter. That's the only guarantee I'll give you against Minnesota. There's going to be a starter yeah. and whether it's Thompson or Sims, two guys that make a lot of sense. I mean, when have we, whenever have we had two power five starting quarterbacks on the roster. And I mean, I'm talking starting quarterbacks with significant starting experience. We have that right now. And yet I don't want to give anything to either one of those, you know, Smothers deserves that shot. Mm -hmm. I want Harburg into it. I want Purdy into it. I want Torres into it and let's work our way out. Let's work our way through the spring. And then to your point, after spring is done, I don't expect us to have six scholarship quarterbacks 
you know, in the summer and, and when we go to uh, Minnesota, I don't expect that then, but, but I want the process to, to play itself out and let's see what happens. That's what I want. And, you know, when, when we talk about when Callahan was gone and then they replaced him with Bo and it was a whole new staff and new strength and conditioning and they, they viewed guys differently. I remember Dobson talking about the defensive backs that they were stiff and they spent all off season working on their hips and, and, and everything that got me thinking about, um, right now with Campbell and the new strength coach and kinesiology. And I mean, I, I don't want to try to come off with some expert talking about kinesiology yet, but I mean, we're talking more about flexibility. You know, it would be interesting what some new eyes and a new strength and conditioning approach to maybe a guy like Ben Hart would be. A lot of fans, sure. I think, have tossed him aside. Ben Hart's, you know, done. He's been here for four years and blah, 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 hasn't played. Well, what if he's one of those guys that next year comes out and he looks 20 pounds lighter? He's got some more bend in Bend him, bend in him from a development standpoint. Go back to the being a developmental program. And what if he starts to match his recruiting hype, his four-star All-American top 100 recruiting hype? What if he matches that? And it took Rule coming in here to get that out of him. I mean, that's that's the yeah. thing, you know. Indomitian and Sue never would have been, never would have been Indomitian and Sue the way we know him if it wasn't for Bo Pelini because he was not on that path. You know, it Correct. took a it took Carl a different Pelini, approach. Carl Pelini. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. Huge, huge. You're right. And you, you can look at the players. Like I, I, when we hired, um, Tony white, you know, a guy that had mm -hmm. a great game against Iowa. If you'll go back and watch the Iowa game, uh, was Javin Wright. I mean, he was, he was everywhere with, with his size. Oh, and, that's right. and, uh, I thought, man, this, this poor guy, man, he, he's battled ACL injuries, um, shoulder injuries, uh, scary blood clots where he almost lost his leg. And now he's out here looking like what we thought Javon Wright is going to look like. And, and now you, you fast forward to the, you know, Tony White's, you know, defense, mm -hmm. a guy like him become, you know, to your point, does he become the, the Eric Hag or the, uh, or Prince of Mucumera that, uh, the talent was always there, but now it's being unlocked in the, in a role that, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that can play his full potential. So, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of pieces there. It's going to be interesting to see how they piece them together and, and make it work. Some of the pieces are changing even up to this moment. Wide receiver a week or two ago looked very different where, <laughs> totally where different. you know, we, to your point, you can't just develop things. Sometimes you need some players too, right? And right. about couple, starting a couple of weeks ago, getting a guy like Billy Kemp from Virginia, who's the number four all-time leading receiver from that school, to have him come in here and uh, hopefully, you know, maybe be, I don't know if he'll have the same production that a Palmer or Torrey had as a transfer the last two years, but if he's anywhere in that conversation, that's a good start, talking point. But then Xavier Betts, and then a guy that you talked about quite a bit last offseason, and you had yeah, high hopes guy. for Isaiah Garcia yeah. Castaneda. That came, well, geez, that came out of absolutely nowhere. nowhere. But and that's but more impressive on rules part there that, that, that you know, he hasn't just given up on somebody. Well, that's the most impressive thing to me. I mean, I, those guys are talented. Obviously, Betts, if he gets his stuff together, and it's going to be a tough, a tough semester for him as far mm -hmm. as academics go. But if he can get his his stuff together, and he's going to be in an environment now where I think he's going to thrive. And I, you know, I think the number one job of a leader, whether it's in business, whether it's any profession, whether it's a coach, is to provide the environment where you can do your best work. And I think the environment now for for Betts is going to be the best it possibly can be. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, um, you know, you, you have now a, a guy in rule who says, I want you back, Betts. I don't want you to get on a plane mm -hmm. to Pittsburgh. You're going to come here and play for me. You know, um, 
Castaneda or, you know, IGC, you guys, he quit in October. I mean, think about like what coach would be like, yeah, come back to the team. He's like, Hey, I I want you back. Things happened. Put that behind us. You've got talent. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the conversation was, but the point is that he wanted those guys back. And I I find that interesting. I mean, we'll see how it works out, but it it shows you, it it gives you a picture into who who rule is right. Mm -hmm. And how he operates and, the way that we might think we'd operate. Oh, that guy, he, I'm not bringing him back. He quit on us. You know, mm-hmm. bets we gave him 15 chances. We busted our butt to get him in the UNL. And this is how he repays us. You know, but but, but rules got a different approach. And um, I, I like that. I like the fact that he's willing to give guys second chances. He's willing to look past whatever happened and, um, you know, give guys a chance. Now, he's going to be tough on them and he's going to hold mm-hmm. them accountable as you would, as you would want. Um but I like that he wants a, you know these guys back there. And, and to your point, to your first point, I mean, the room's totally different now. I mean, before a week and a half ago, we we're like, man, I don't know, Lante Brown. He, you know, he had some good catches last year. Uh, but who's gonna? I mean, Marcus Washington's your number one receiver. Like, I like him for sure. But you know, you're like, man, this is not a good picture. And now all of a sudden, it's wow, that that room has got some real potential now. And um, mm-hmm. it might even add add more to it here. Uh, with a, a re- receiver coming in for a visit in in Bell, uh, a four star on Saturday. So they're not mm-hmm. they're not done yet. So um, I, I like that part. And in Kemp, he's a veteran guy, so you bring a veteran presence into that room that misses Trey Palmer, who leaves now. So you need to have a leader in that room. And you have you have uh, Kemp, you have uh, you know Fleeks from from Baylor uh, mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, it changed changed pretty quickly, didn't it? <laughs> well, you know, and <laughs> at, we can... and at and at ninety six guys on the roster, some of the guys we just mentioned, who knows? They might we're going to have to get down to eighty five, just like every other school. So that means there's well, not, at least... I would not exactly. I mean, let's keep in mind this is one of the advantages that he's going to have with NIL here in Nebraska is you're going to be able to move guys like they moved guys last year uh, to NIL scholarships so they're going to be off the 85 um so he's got that flexibility now that he's going to be able to so not to to delay you know beat up your Mm. point but um i think he's got flexibility as far as the 85 number goes there might be yeah there might be possibilities depending on how nil works for some guys to not not be on a scholarship um i suppose that that gets into a whole area that i'm still yeah not 100% aware of. I just, I know that we're going to lose some guys over the course of this too. And to your earlier point that that's important, that's an important part of the process. What I like is even if it's someone that we just talked about, someone that we're excited is back. Let's just say bets as an example. Hey, we're excited. He's back. Well, if he goes through the process and it doesn't work for him and I'm not saying it wouldn't, but if it didn't, then, you know, that's still part of the process. I want, I want rule to, I'd rather him have more guys to look at right now, more guys to go through the development process. You're going to weed some guys out. Some guys are going to, you know, shine that we never thought they would before. That happens a lot of times with these coaching changes. I think of Corey Ross when, when Callahan staff came on board, Corey Ross all of a sudden became a, a starter and he probably wouldn't have been doing much beforehand. Right. And there's, there's always examples like that. So new staff, yeah, new staffs bring new eyes, bring new strength and conditioning, approaches all those things that excites me now if i'd be remiss i have got the the biased realist the husker realist on on the forum i'd be remiss not to bring up to just ask the question you know 
So I'm, I'm, I'm rose colored. I'm, 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 I'm feeling good, but brings, bring me back down here. What are some of the biggest challenges you see? What are the things if we can't the race to six, but we don't get there, what are the things, the, the potholes you see in the way that maybe would prevent us the, the biggest challenges we have to get to that, to that six and more wins. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the, the staff, when he was assembling the staff, we thought he's got to have someone with big 10 experience, right? He's someone that's been in this league before that knows the stadiums that knows these teams. And, and so there's no one on the, the staff that, that is, that was in the big 10 last year. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there's a, there's a little bit of an unfamiliarity with some of these teams and how the, you know, just kind of the new uh, other than Rayola, in. other than Rayola, you're right. Exactly. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about Rayola. Um, but that's a little bit, maybe we'll have to see how that plays. I mean, that was a knock against frost, right? They weren't from the big 10. They don't know how this works. They're, they're going to get, mm-hmm. you know, totally overwhelmed. And they, they did that first year. Right. So how fast can rule and those guys overcome that, um, you know, that unfamiliarity with the big 10 is probably one, one area. And, and then probably number two is defensive tackle, defensive line. You know, I think the, the loss of Colton feast is, is a huge, huge loss. I don't think it got enough attention that it, that it probably deserved. And he was, he was great for last us last year. And so um, losing him and we haven't added anybody other than Judy from the, from the portal, you know, how are we going to hold up throughout the season? And maybe we get, you know, we do find the first four or five games, but, you know, come November, you know, injuries play a role. How, how do we, how do we get through a 12 game season with what we have right now? And again, things can change. We were in January, maybe they add some pieces in May and so forth. And it, it works out, but that defensive line, it was a concern last year and it's a concern again um, this year. We just don't have a, a ton of experience outside of, out of four guys. And that's, yeah, I, that's, I'm that's looking concerning. at the list. I'm looking at the list here. You've got Stephen Wynn Jr., uh, Nash Hutmacher, Ty Robinson, Elijah Judy is the the transfer from A&M. Mm-hmm. Uh, now this list says Raquan Buckley, but he was a tight end the last that I saw. So I think he had transferred over. And then it's it's the incoming guys. It's Vincent Carroll Jackson, who Rob's going to have on tomorrow night. Yeah. Uh, Seven o'clock. So Redcasters uh, be again. Uh, who, by the way, is a, is, a, is a four star as of today. I don't know if you saw that, but he's. Oh, did they? Oh, that's on awesome. Twitter. He, yeah, he's a four star on, on 247. So. OK, Rob, yeah. Uh, yeah. mark that down. Four star uh, uh, Vincent on 247. But Riley Van Poppel, Cameron Lennart, those are all four star incoming guys. I'm not you know, counting on the play. Yeah, that's you know, tough. And, I mean. It, this kind of goes almost to the same thing I had last off season, where if we're in a, th- a true three man front, that doesn't look like great depth. If, if you're counting those guys as, as three man D linemen, if we're in a more of a four man, you know, we need two true defensive tackles, then that doesn't look so bad. Now we named Win yeah. Hutmacher, Robinson, Judy, those freshmen, you know, and, and if a, if a walk on can get developed over the off season, just like feast did a year ago, no one, a, no one a year ago right now is talking about Colton feast in the kind of light that he eventually, you know, played in. So if we could have someone like that, I mean, that depth doesn't look so bad if we're trying to find five, six guys to fill two spots with edge guys, you know, filling in around. True. But, but I don't know. I don't know what that defense looks like yet. You know, we know that we have Butler's another one of those examples of a guy that went into the portal and they got him to come back. So Jamari Mm -hmm. Butler and Blaze Gunnarsson, uh, Chief Borders is the, transfer from from florida on the edge when i think edge i kind of think d end right now too kai wallens the junior junior college guy from california mj sherman's a five-star georgia transfer who only played like about 140 snaps the last three years and i've seen some 
some negativity about that, but I would challenge anyone to look at uh, Trey Palmer's, you know, stats coming from LSU and it, they weren't overly impressive either. A lot of times guys transfer because you're not getting the opportunity. You want a new, right. new set of coaches. So Sherman, Gunnarsson, but, uh, Butler, Borders, Wallen, and then, uh, and then we bring in some of the new guys with Jace, Jake Applegate, uh, uh, then Maverick Noonan, Princewell Uman, Malin. Uh, there's some talent there on the edge as well, too. So who knows? Maybe one knows, breaks but, through. Yeah, we don't. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just the guys that we, we've we seen play. I mean, we can all, I think, hope that one of the new guys breaks through and has a, has a role. But without having ever seen him play, I don't really count on any of the freshmen to make an impact until they actually do. But they don't seem to be going after a whole lot of guys. So they, to your, maybe your point, they seem to be liking the way their edges set up and how that defense is going to be run. Cause there are some good pieces with Gunnarsson, like you mentioned there. I'm excited for Gunnarsson. I thought he had a good end of the last year. And I think it's, is this is his third year now or, or fourth year in the system. Third yeah, year. Yeah. He'd be going into at least year three, year if not four. But, yeah. but think about that borders, Wallen and Sherman are all non-traditional. They're definitely not high school guys. They're either Juco or they're transfers. Yep. And those are three guys getting infused right into that spot and being here for the off season. And again, that's, that's the whole part. And, and no matter what your, your initial point of, if we're not going to be good, it's going to start up there. And this is what, you know, Trev said when he fired Frost, we need to get, we need to be physical. We need to be winning the trenches. If all those names I just said, if they're great and and we're awesome next year, we're going to have a pretty good team and we're going to win some games. If those guys struggle, if we don't have the depth, if guys get hurt, if, you know, a series of things, then that's probably going to you're going to point to that area as the so, reason yeah, why part. we didn't we didn't get the race to six or we didn't get whatever that goal was that we were wanting. It would be, be probably start right up front there. So you see the same thing as far as your concerns go, the defensive I, line of the year. You know, when you think about the, where they've gone to add. uh well, at least partially where they've gone to add immediate depth out of the portal. You see it there on the edge with Sherman, Wallen, and Borders. I, I'm calling Wallen a, a transfer, even though he's Juco. Juco uh, Judy, yeah. that's a transfer. Then you go on to the offensive line, and Ben Scott is a huge incoming transfer. Obviously, we thought we had that with Walter Rouse, and then uh, he had the 72-hour uh, flu bug, and, and he's down in Oklahoma now. But – but uh Still, they went into the portal to bring in a center next year who's going to be, by all accounts, should be a, a day one player. Plug and, and play you know, and, and think about the O-line. If we're, if we're also not successful for some reason next year, you would point to that offensive side along the line. And I would say that, you know, we played our best offensive line game last year against Iowa in week 12. And right now, I can see three guys on this line that are better than probably anybody we had on the line that day. Uh, a healthy Prohaska, uh, Ben Scott coming Nuelli, in here, yeah. and then Nuuli. And when I had Zaska on last year before the season started, I, he made some reference where he basically said there were two guys he thought that were on our team that could play anywhere, that could play for Georgia. And he said uh, he said Zaska, and then he said Nuuli. And and the day that we interviewed, it was right after, just a couple of days after Newley was suspended for the season. So he kind of, you know, Zaska's deep voice was like, oh, it's, it's, it's a shame that, you know, he that happened because he he thought that highly of him. And I wasn't expecting Newley huh. to be a name coming out of his mouth about being that, that good of a player, but it was hit the point that that was that big of a loss. To get him back, to have 
to hopefully have a healthy Prohaska here, to have Ben Scott, that's a good starting point. And then we got to develop the, the Ben Hearts. We got to develop Corcoran. We've got to develop yeah. Piper. I like Lutovsky. I mean, there's a lot of good pieces. Uh, and they have a coach now that's worked with them for a year and, and uh, they get a chance to work with them again. You have a coach and you have a head coach who's, who's committed to that, making sure it's going to work properly. And you've got, um, you've got better synergy now with, with the, the offense to the offensive line. And we, we heard last year, some of the rumblings about, you know, the Riola and Whipple and just mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't the marriage we were, we were going to be successful with them. It just wasn't yep. going to happen. We wanted it to be, but it didn't really ever mesh up. But now you've got this this head coach who who's going to make sure the offense and the offensive line uh, have the same the same mission, and, and they're going to have a much more easier of a I think a, a marriage than you did last year. And so, you know, mm-hmm. second year second year with offensive line coach that definitely helps as well. You have the same voice; those guys all got on the table and and you know vouched for Rayola. Uh, even the guys who left, like Banks, they wanted to say this is the guy. And mm-hmm. so he's got a one-year contract and he's got a, an opportunity to come in and show that, you know, he can do it. You know, last season, that. last off season, Frost said something very similar to what uh, Rule said, but in kind of typical Rule fashion, he, he explains it a little better and goes in a little more in depth than Frost would. But a year ago, Frost talked about he loved the style, the approach that um, – that Rayola brought. And that that's why I hired him. I hired him because he coaches the style of O-line that I wanted, mm-hmm. but never really went in depth and maybe wasn't ever asked that. But in my mind, from an X's and O's standpoint, and the things that I'm curious about, I'm like, well, what does that mean? Well, then rule sticks around here, keeps Rayola. And immediately the, the Twitter sphere is, oh, you're just trying to get his, his nephew or whatever. Why in the world are we keeping this guy? But then when he had the opportunity in the press conference, gets asked, why'd you keep Rayola? He, he went right back to the same thing. He, he coaches the style that I like coached. Well, what does that mean? And it was the, I think the World Herald did an article. They broke down the, the three different yeah. styles of, of blocking, and it was flat back, and it was zone blocking, and there was, there was one other kind. But the, the point that Rule made was there's not that there's one right or wrong style. There's not. It's just that whatever style it is that you want to do, you, you really don't want to hire someone that doesn't want to do that style. It just doesn't, it, that part doesn't fit, you know? So if you're a, yeah. if you're a, a flat back guy, which is what Rayola is and, and, and firing off and driving guys and, and taking them down, then you don't want to do, you don't want to hire a zone guy. You just don't want to, not that zone blocking is bad. You just, you want to get someone that aligns with the style you want. And that sounds like that's what Frost wanted to do. Frost gets fired. We don't know that that's what Whipple wants to do. We can see friction between Whipple and, Rayola, and then now we have we have rule in here and rule sitting there going, no, this is what I want to do. I want to so on that so on that point, um, I'll take it one step further. Satterfield's press conference, mm-hmm. he sounded just like Frost. If you listen to his press conference, he was like, This guy, I spoke to him for half an hour and he got excited just talking about Rayola. You know, he's mm-hmm. like, I love this guy, this is the way I want to play. And I was like, it sounds like the same thing that that Frost said. So you like you piece these things together. You know, you piece what what Rule said and um, about how the players all got on a, on a table and were like, "This is the guy we want." I mean, and um, it's interesting. You know, I don't know how it's going to work out. I mean, I hope it works mm-hmm. out obviously well for us. But you've got a, a, re- a fired head coach in Frost, and you've got a, a new head coach in Rule, 
a new offensive coordinator, and they're all saying the exact same thing mm-hmm. um, about Rayola that his players are saying, and then also his his mentor at Notre Dame, you know, mm-hmm. um, Harry Heinstein said the same thing. I mean, so we'll see. But there's a lot of guys that are that are getting on a table and saying this guy's the real deal. So and, and um, there is a message. There's a connection of message that you're hearing when you when you listen to Satterfield. Didn't you kind of think, oh my God, I'm hearing Rule because it sounded there were so many yeah, similarities similar. to what Rule said. Yeah. But when I listened to Rule, I was like, gosh, am I listening to Trev? Because there's things that he's saying yeah. that I swear Trev just said three months ago when he fired Frost. And what it makes me think of was Hill Varsity Radio about a week or so back. It was uh, Chris Schmidt. Schmidt he had um, Mitch Sherman on, and he just asked Sherman, and it was right after they kind of announced the. Uh, McGuire as a wide receivers coach and fans were, there were some fans that were like, Oh my God, you know, we're hiring a kid in his diaper still. And it's like, you know, take a step back. And he asked, he asked Sherman, what do you think of the staff? And Sherman's answer was, I think it's functional. And then he stops because he's like, I know that doesn't sound sexy. I, I, I don't mean this as any, yeah. I don't mean this in a negative way towards the staff at all. I think it's functional. And what's the opposite of functional dysfunctional. And how many times over the years at Nebraska, whether it's assistant coach to head coach or coordinator, or maybe it's an athletic director, or maybe it's the, maybe it's, you go all the way back to Harvey Perlman and, and, and Bo yelling at, you know, having public spats after the yeah. A&M game in 2010, we just would have different dysfunctions at different levels of leadership or, or coaching. And to have what we have right now, which is, perfect function. I mean, what Trev said he wanted when he fired Frost, it absolutely sounds, looks like he hired the guy that is exactly what he wanted. He wanted a guy that's going to, you know, focus his attention in here in in the trenches. We're going to be physical. Um, You know, he's going to have a a style here. He's going to have an approach. Uh, You you hire rule in here. Rule comes in, says the exact same things, and then goes a a step further and and does some of the almost Devaney-esque kind of, uh, uplifting him. I mean, really it's a preacher son thing. He, he's going out to a, a fan base that's been beaten down and making them feel good. And that's, you go back into any history thing, watch, watch what Devaney did before he ever got to Nebraska. He went around the state to every single County talked in every single VFW club and, and, and whatever, and just talked to Husker fans back in 1961 after 20 seasons of a lot of losing seasons and just started getting people excited. And, and, and yeah, and, and it was uplifting. It was positive. And then he backed it up in year one by doing something that nobody ever thought he'd do, which was win nine games after a whole bunch of three and four win seasons. Devaney picked, you know, picked a first game on the season. It was the second game. It was at Michigan. It wasn't, wasn't a very good Michigan team. And he goes, I think we can beat these guys and let's focus on this game. Let's, this game would be a one that would really, it could change the course. It could give people, um, uh, it could give people confidence both on the team and fans to your point, that Minnesota game. I'm not, I don't want to put everything on one game, but imagine a victory there in week one Would that. What kind of confidence would that do to the team? What kind of confidence would that do to the fan base? Fan base. Yeah. That that's experienced the types of losses that we've had. We've just, we need some positive things happening and we're seeing them right now, but this is also the time of the year where, you know, positive things get met with a lot of, uh, fair skepticism because we've seen positive things sure. happen this time of the year. And at the end of the day, it's all going to come down to the wins and losses and rules. No different there. So quick thing. You, you mentioned uh, Mitch Sherman and talking about the functional team and, and kind of what Trev wanted. Um, so I go back to, to last spring or last summer and I was, 
you know, I was buying into the Whipple experiment. I, you know, the rail I thought was going to work out, but there was a podcast um, that Terry Pettit, the um, former volleyball coach, yeah, he has a, his own podcast. We mm-hmm. had Trev on. It was like mid to late July, and he asked Trev what he thought a head coach should be. Basically, describe the the qualities of a head coach. This is when I realized that Trev was going to fire Frost. <laughs> and it was like, oh my, it was that, that, you know, that silver bullet moment where I was like, this is not going to work because he said, I want, or he didn't say it, a head coach to me is someone who can coach coaches. It's hard to be a, an assistant coach and coach players. You love to do that. You were a youth coach. You love coaching players. All coaches get into coaching profession to do that. Now as a head coach, you have to divest yourself from that and coach coaches. And that's not easy. It's hard. Mm. So I, the the ones that do it do it right are successful at that. And number two, you have to be the chief executive of a multi million dollar enterprise, multi million dollar enterprise. You have to be the CEO of that. And he said, lastly, they have to be able to get players and coaches to run through a wall for them. And that's it. Those were his three things. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, and no, it's not going to work. It's not going to work out. And you look at you talk about take it full circle. Rule is those three things. He he is um he's he's a you can see the structure there what he's building this organization he's building. He he hired um you know Susie Elza, he hired uh um CJ um Cabasos. I mean he's hiring these 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 pillars of an organization, he's building this, this structure. He's hiring coaches that were like, What are you doing? Like he, but to, to Mitch Sherman's point, it's it's a he is coaching coaches. And he is fully mm-hmm. confident in his ability to coach and hold accountable coaches and grow them. And then you you add in the third piece. Um, you know, we've we've heard several of our former players, heck, there's nine of them on his staff. They're still playing for this guy, still coaching with this guy. They run through a wall for him. And so I think of those three things Trev said to Terry, I'm like, he, he got exactly what he was looking for. Now it has to manifest itself out, and then we you know, mm-hmm. we're obviously, but I think it will. But it, it's just kind of funny looking back on that conversation and and seeing how what rule is today, and he got the guy that that he wanted, you know. And I don't think he mm-hmm. was picturing rule back in July, obviously, when he was talking to Terry Pettit. But um, he meets those three criteria. It's interesting. It's a, it's yeah. a functional a functional organization. It's a healthy organization. You can see and that the- in. And that's the thing that doing, doing things, what well, we've said this for so many years on the show and it's so, it, it just, it's, I want to burn every one of the tapes because it never came to fruition, but it was, if you do the right thing and you do the right thing long enough, good things should eventually happen. I mean, if you have a well-run organization, we shouldn't be scared to say, Hey, I think we can get to six wins in year one or seven or eight or right. whatever. I don't, again, I don't want to put a, a cap on it, but Oh, don't say that because you know we went three and nine and four and eight last. Well, this this is a new staff and it's a new approach and a new way of doing it. But but it has to be done right. Yet there are no shortcuts here. That's no the shortcuts. one thing. I, the yep. the portal can't be a shortcut. They they have to stick to. They want to be a developmental program. They still need to be one, even living in this world of nil and and the portal. And and so I think there are ways that you can balance that. And again, getting guys in here now to do it are are important. But you also have to find a way that's going to work for you. We can't expect – I brought up Osborne earlier, and I know Coach Rules met with Osborne now, and I know he, he gives great reverence to Osborne, and I we can't expect him to do things the way that Osborne did it. That's not the point of this, and there's not one way to be successful, but he has to find what works for him. 
And I think your point about managing and coaching coaches is really important because that's something that I think he, he takes great pride in. I think he takes great pride in doing things a little different than someone else's. So when he goes and brings up Joey McGuire from uh, the, the Texas Jared? high school yeah. ranks oh, Joey, back yeah. in, yeah. no, Joey, back in the days of, of Baylor, and I'm sure there are people going, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's a high school coach. You're, you're coaching P5 football. Well, that guy's now at Texas Tech as the head coach. His son is the next generation of young coach that he's brought up, and, and we'll see. I mean, Garrett, we'll find out in five and ten years. He might be the next Lincoln Riley. He might be a coach that was is over his head. We'll find out. Uh, Bob Wager, you know, another Texas longtime successful high school football coach, now coaching tight ends for us. It'll be interesting, but he's taking his approach, and this is rules going to do it the way that he that he feels is going to be successful. He and the, I think as important as anything because he's coaching up coaches. But those two coordinators he brought in, those are differentiators. We brought in power five sitting coaches from other schools, from Syracuse and from, from South Carolina. We brought in guys that can take care of the X's and O's and guys I think that can speak in place of rule. Certainly Satterfield can, my goodness. I mean, that sure. they can also coach up some of the coaches too. And and you saw that with Satterfield's not a uh, – these are not coaches that are – uh, the head coach is really the guy running the show and the, and the coordinators are just sitting back there, you know, kind of taking orders. Those guys, Satterfield had a role in whether Rayola stays or not. You can tell it. He's going to have a sure. role in what the, sure. what the X's and O's are. And, and same thing goes there with white on defense. I've heard, I've heard rule described this way. He, he is a, he is a micromanager and he's going to be involved in every single detail of the program. We can't be everywhere. Obviously nobody can, but mm-hmm. he has, he has guys like Satterfield, his coaches, his staff is going to know exactly what he wants, what he expects. Um, and they're going to be able to give that information, that intel back to him to keep where he, where he's, he can't be in a, a staff meeting here or in a production meeting over here. But the, but the expectation is going to be well known and there's going to be no deviation from, from what he wants. And I think, you know, too often in the past with Frost and Riley, you know, you didn't have that. You didn't have that structure of the organization. Um, there wasn't clear expectations of what was expected of them. And he's going to ask you, he's going to be extremely in the details in terms of, um, you know, mm-hmm. what's taking place in his program. This is, this is 100% rules program. And it sounds like, you know, Trev has been like, go at it, big guy. Like, you know, get, get crazy. I'll be over here, to, you know, getting my life back. But um, <laughs> it just shows you how much, you know, there's a, um, it, it's funny listening to guys that, that played for Osborne and there's some on the radio, but there's, there's almost like, um, may I've told you this before, it's almost like a giddiness to their, to their stories about the interactions with, with rule and um, different than, than what we've had before. And it's interesting to kind of take note of just their quick assimilation and affinity and just buy-in. Um, mm-hmm. even when they've wanted to be skeptical and the same things as, as we have been fans, but, you know, seeing him work and seeing, um, his, his grind, I think is really turned guys that were maybe like, ah, I don't know, you know, to, to, to what he's doing. Like us as fans, like remember last year, we were like, why are we offering Zane Flores? Like, what is going mm-hmm. on? Like, what are you not seeing Frost and, and Verdusco? Everyone in this in this state is telling you this guy is the real deal. There's people are mm-hmm. like, this guy is the best quarterback I've seen in years in Nebraska. And we're not offering him. It's mind blowing. 
Yeah, and, and it was so inconsistent because they'd be doesn't make any they'd sense. be on they'd be on other in-state guys, and they were. And when we had Benning on last year, Benning talked about how they were yeah. working harder in yeah. o- o- Omaha and all those things. And it's like, okay, that's all great, and that was all great. And we got a bunch of in-state guys. Why are you not yeah. offering that kid? <laughs> it just it and you know what? It, so rule gets rule gets here, and the one of the first thing he does is try to get Zane Flores. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he tries everything. He gets. He gets even he gets a phone call from his dad. He actually gets on mm-hmm. the phone, and gets able. To, he's thinking about going and, and to 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 Zane Flores's um Gretna's uh awards night to go show up there. And he is seriously irked and upset that a guy like Zane Flores is leaving the state of Nebraska, mm-hmm. just like us as fans would feel. And his and his mission, I guarantee, he told his coaches this will never happen again. We weren't here when this happened, but a player like him will never leave the state again. Not going to happen. So basically telling all you guys, you know, watch this, see what happened. We weren't here, but know mm. this occurred on our, on our soil. And it's a shame it happened. And it, and mm. it, it, you could, it kills him that Zane Flores is going to Oklahoma State. And, even and that's it, what I want. I want, yeah. I want a coach like that because that's how and, I felt. That's how you felt. And, you and, know, and that's, it fires me up. And we don't get that one kid. And that one individual instance, that, that's painful. We don't get him. But – but it was still the value of him reaching out still has Huge. value. That's still Huge. good. Those coaches yes. know that now that pays dividends down the road for what it's worth. It's not the first time we've ever seen a guy transfer. So if there was ever futures, you know, who knows? The point who is, knows? It, right. it, it, what, what do you, what do you tell your kids or what do you tell anyone when you're mentoring them at work? Don't burn bridges and you, you keep your, your relationships. And, and, um, and he's certainly, I think rule, he appreciates that. Um, as we start to wind this talk down, I think about something. I, I put it on your on your uh, graphic here. I call it the hardest working fan on Husker Twitter. Kind of a almost yeah. a, the James Brown hardest working man in, in rock and roll there. But uh, you were the you're the hardest working man on Husker Twitter, and that, that's grinder, right? I mean, if you 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 listen to every podcast, you read everything. Nice. I mean, anyone nice. seriously, you know, fan formers and redcasters. If you're not if you're on Twitter and you're not following Jim, follow him at Huskers MN. Um, you the amount of time and effort it, it it boggles my mind sometimes because you've heard you hear everything you see everything you you read everything and one of the things i think is interesting about how trev brought rule in is that as painful as the 75 days were that we didn't have a head coach at least a you know a, we had mickey in the interim but we didn't sure. have the head coach but i never was worried that Trev wasn't handling it right. This wasn't a 40 day search under Peterson, you know, where we were sending right. planes to Arkansas and they're coming back empty. Nothing like that. He handled it the right way, but it is painful as those 75 days were. If you did it right, it actually gives you one of the most unbelievable opportunities that very rarely ever get handed to an athletic director. He had 75 days to reflect, look at what he really wants you know, ask the hard questions, talk to a lot of people. I mean, when do coach, when do ADs get that chance? So many times Never. coaches are fired and hired so quickly, such quick turnarounds. And here he has a chance just over the course of a couple of months to just talk over coffee with this Matt rule guy and just become buddies yep. and, and, and become, you know, and, and learn about each other to the point where it became a thing where I'm, I don't care what the obstacle is. I'm not going to lose this guy. We're going to get this guy. And he got him. So I mean, it, it, it may it may work out gloriously. It may not work out. But but uh, I think Trev couldn't be any more ecstatic with who he got out of this. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think 
just put yourself in Trap's shoes. I mean, imagine, like you just imagine if you or I had to fire a coach and hire the replacement with, you know, every news outlet wanting to know what's going on and do it in a span of a week. And that's what most 80s have to do. Um, he got to be able to sit back, like you said, and, and, and vet every single candidate, take his time, watch um, their press conferences, how they handle the media, you know, um, you know, where they worked before, who knows them, all that stuff. And he, he arrived at probably, I'm guessing, two or three guys. And, it, and he got the guy. I always say this, too, because I, you know, I always say I wanted Fickle. And I, I, I wanted – I like the idea of Fickle. I, I love the, the hire of Rule. But I think we got the coach that we needed um, in Rule for our situation. And Wisconsin got the coach that they needed uh, mm-hmm. for their purposes. And I don't – and I, I, I think – I think would I have liked Fickle? Yes, absolutely. But I think Rule is a much, much better coach for our situation. Um, having been through his experiences, he's been through having failed in the NFL, which I think is Trev mentioned that he wanted a guy, you know, that had had failed too. So he's had success and he's failed. Fickle hasn't failed yet, and so yeah. I think I'm really excited about him being the guy. Like he said and, and arriving at that. Um, solution and, and that final solution that this was the guy to lead this program and yeah. uh, I'm excited well we all know the coaches that, that failed at the pros have no chance of uh you know bringing you know having a second life in college uh nick saban or Pete carroll but you know that's that's yeah. beyond the point so uh you know it, yeah he's had an, an interesting career he's definitely a college guy i think if nothing else that that came out of that and he is that grinder um he's the, the <laughs> rob has the uh text that's going across the bottom the hardest working man in show business was James Brown, not hardest working man in rock and roll. Ah, yes. Thought about that the second I said that, but uh, regardless, um, yeah, he he wanted to find a grinder. I think he found one. I think he's finding a staff that's gonna gonna match that too. Well, so I have a question for you before you go. Have you yeah. been confused yet for Matt Rule on the streets of uh, of uh, of Lincoln? <laughs> so have we, have we got any uh, questions from from kids asking their mom and dad? Is that Coach Rule? I went to um I went to the Oh, the opening press day that when uh, yeah. when they introduced him, and when I walked over, uh, cr- uh, when I cr- walked across campus to the East Stadium, about four or five different people said something to me. Now I think two or three <laughs> of them recognized me from the show, so yeah. they they're yeah. almost joking. Then one I, one guy had no idea who I was. I could tell he had no idea what the Redcast was, but he looked at me and and like, "Are you Coach Rule?" And I'm like. Come on, it's not that close. Like, I get it. I get um, some similarities, but I'm not. I'm not yeah. like it shouldn't. Someone shouldn't look at me and like seriously think like, oh my god, like it's not that close. In fact, okay. I saw. I think it's JP on like K. It must be somebody that's on like a guy that's on radio and he's on Twitter. He looks a lot more like okay. uh, rule than I do. And somebody pointed that out, and I was like, yeah, I think that guy that guy has a, a little more of the, the facial things. But anyways, I get it, I, I and I'll play with it, you know, have fun with it, the uh, the doppelganger, official doppelganger of the uh, of the uh, the program. But anyways, that's uh, that's where we're at with that. So, well, we're getting to the very end of it here. Uh, Jim, as we always do on the Redcast and on the forum, I want to allow you, the, the guest, to have the parting shot and kind of take us out of here. Uh, tell us what's, what's on your mind. Yeah, no, I, I'm always excited about what you guys are doing. I love the, uh, the Go Big Redcast. You guys have the best uh, podcast. And for those who are listening, um, support these guys. Um, 
listen to their shows. You guys do a phenomenal job. And I, I love the fact that you guys are there uh, thick and thin. You, you know, you, you've had some down years, but you guys keep coming back with great shows. So looking forward to, to, to tomorrow night's show with Vincent um, Carol Jackson. Great, uh, great story. Played, I think, only eight or nine uh, games his senior year. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of raw talent. I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing his story. So thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate uh, what you guys are doing. Go Big Red. Oh, absolutely. Well, as uh, as you mentioned, uh, yeah, next week or next tomorrow night, we will have Vincent Carroll Jackson on, defense alignment. Next week, we will have uh, Chaz and SoCal on. I have a just a, a slew of, of other shows that are going to be planned. Got some former Huskers, uh, some big things in the works over the course awesome. of the offseason, some big ideas. And then we're going to sprinkle in some, uh, some red casts as well throughout. And we might even do some things a little differently with the, the regular red cast. We've talked about maybe going back and doing just some audio format only and not have the whole show out there on YouTube. Um, some things are b- built more for YouTube and not others. So maybe we do an audio only podcast, but if we have a, couple of good segments out of it we'll pull those out put post those to our youtube channel as well so we're we're playing around this is the, the off season where we're going to try to get better too and uh and uh it, it's a lot of fun but thank you so much jim yeah, uh, it's it's always good having you on like you said i think this is your fourth or fifth time and and it won't be your last because uh we love talking with husker fans like you but uh i guess when it comes down to that remember this redcasters maybe you could be the next one to join us on the forum Heard at Sports Network Production.